Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are learning a lot about how to deal with people who have dementia. And sometimes it does feel like we're making progress. I mean, for instance, every time I hear about the dementia village that's been created out in Langley, I think, what a lovely idea. Then I heard about this story out in Japan. Now, dementia is a big health concern in Japan. They have a rapidly aging population, where around 30% of people are 65 and older. And there is a huge concern about how to deal with all of this, particularly dementia care and support. They have something called a dementia cafe. It's kind of like showing society how to create an inclusive environment for people with dementia. It is the servers in this cafe who have dementia. So first of all, if you're going to one in Japan, be patient because your order may be delayed or forgotten. But that's the point. It's about teaching people how to relate to each other. Now, Michelle Lee has written about this. Michelle is a Tokyo bureau chief for the Washington Post newspaper and joins us now. Michelle, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a lovely idea. How does this cafe work? This cafe, it is such a neat concept. It opens once a month, just for two hours at a time. There's one server per hour. It's actually a quite small cafe, very intimate, about 12 seats. Um, The cafe's operators work with the local government to identify the right people who want to work there, who want to have this experience. They they serve the customers uh, one hour at a time. Uh, There are volunteers who are younger who help the elderly servers um, go to the tables, take the orders. Uh, but for the most part, the elderly servers do it on their own. It really depends, uh, you know, based on what level of dementia they have, how much it's progressed. Um, but it's really to try to keep them active, keep them engaged, especially with new customers every month, but they're having new types of interactions. Okay, and what is the benefit in this? What what happens for the for the servers and for the customers? Absolutely. I mean, you know, dementia has no cure and it's a neurodegenerative disease. So you're losing a lot of your um, neurological abilities. And so the point is to try to help these servers stay active, stay engaged out of the house rather than sort of withering away at home by themselves or going to the same daycare and seeing the same people or having the same interactions with their family members. Um, they come, there's, there's an order form that they use. It's very simple. It's color-coded. You just sort of have to check what the person wants. The menu is very limited. It's, a, it's almost like a you know, desserts and ca- coffee-type cafe. Mm-hmm. And they go up to the customers. They take the order. Um, they go to the kitchen, deliver it to them, um, take their you know, payment. So it's a fairly straightforward um, interaction, mm-hmm. but it gives the servers an opportunity to talk and engage to the level that they want and can. Wow. So when you were there, like, what did you see? What was it like? So I observed two servers working um, on a recent day that it was open. One server um, was a little more progressed in his dementia than the other one. So the first one, he was, you know, he has been, he's 
he was diagnosed five years ago. He doesn't really show emotions anymore. He was speaking in very short sentences like yes or no or hello. Um, but once he saw customers over and over, for example, after the, he first took their orders and then brought them their drink and then brought them their food, the more he interacted with the same customers, I noticed him getting um, more at ease. And he actually smiled at one customer and he seemed more comfortable. And it resulted in these like very special brief moments of connection that the customers themselves also said they really appreciated. The second server, he's 85, he was diagnosed two years ago, um, but his dementia hasn't progressed that much. And so he was, he wanted to be more active. He used to be an insurance salesman and you can really tell because he was so chatty. He was telling me that he feels younger just being there. He wanted to keep working. I mean, he kept, you know, he was forgetful. He would bring the order to the wrong table. He would go up to take up and take an order, but then forget his order form. So there were moments like that. But for the most part, he was just absolutely engaged. We talked to his wife and she said that he tells her that just going one once a month isn't enough and that he wants more interactions like that because he wants to stay productive. Wow, that's amazing. And so do doctors also think like, is this beneficial for dementia patients in the long term? Will it help them kind of keep those connections? Right. I mean, I've, I'm not a doctor, but I've you know read a lot of research about how um, staying active, um, trying to prolong the productive years is very key to trying to delay the progress of dementia. And actually, there was a healthcare worker there at the cafe, and she was commenting to me about how great those sorts of interactions were and how she was um, happy to see that because she knew that that was very beneficial for the elderly who are experiencing dementia. And even for the community, too, it's good to see um, what the elderly go through, what dementia patients go through, and develop new types of engagement that even members of the public may never have had before. You know, unless you have a family member with dementia or you're somehow personally close to it, you don't really have an opportunity to interact with it. So um, in Japan, because it is such a rapidly growing issue and a, and a dire health concern, they want to create more of these spaces where um, they could help these patients try to prolong their productive years, try to keep them out of the house, out of hospitals, um, lessen the workload on caretakers so that society, you know, can keep them integrated as long as possible. Right. Is this a big topic in Japan, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, um, as you mentioned, Japan is a very quickly aging society. And the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has actually identified dementia as a national um, health project, an urgent national project. He's been, um, he got the national legislature to pass a bunch of new programs and services to help people with dementia. Um, the health ministry is putting more money toward dementia programs and services and to more educational programs and support for families who are helping their family members. Because, I mean, this is already a very big health concern and it's only going to grow over the next several decades. Right. Well, Michelle, your piece in the Washington Post was beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. 
you'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, look who's back with us on this Wednesday morning. He's here one day, gone one day. I, I don't make the schedule, Simi. I just go where <laughs> I'm told, okay? And uh, this I've been in this position before where I feel like I have uh, more than one, uh, I don't like to use the term boss, but I have more than one boss, right? Like I am accountable to you in this show, and I'm also accountable to the people who are like, hey, we need you to fill in for jazz today. Well, hey, you know what? Good for you, but I just thought that short turnaround for you. If you fill in for jazz, then you're up early in the morning to do this show. Yeah, that, but I do it because I'm committed, Simi. I'm committed to us right, and I'm to sorry, this. I'm, I'm sorry I gave you this opportunity <laughs> to talk about how great to, you to are. To grant yes. myself. Uh, because we were actually going to rant about something this morning that I know a lot of commuters out there would love to rant about too, and that is trucks hitting overpasses. I actually thought we were done with this story. I thought the last time this happened a few months back that that would be it because that last one was so egregious and that truck drivers everywhere would be like, geez, I better make sure my load fits under the overpass. Oh yeah. It was like a bridge hitting season and it felt like bridge hitting season was over. And then yesterday uh, at Dollarton, a truck hit an overpass and had at like seven o'clock in the, in the evening and uh, they had to shut highway one and it was a whole big mess. And of course now here we are again the next morning having this exact same discussion of how does this keep happening? happening and what what can we do about it and like you and I were joking earlier that it's like hey they post the height of there's the no bridges excuse. there's no excuse and my feeling now is that it's become so egregious that the only way to really get the message through is the next time this happens is to hit that driver and company with such a big fine that everyone else is going to go, oof, geez, I don't want that to happen I, to me. Yes, I totally think that, that that's right. And like we talked about, uh, we've had guests on the show before who have mentioned that like there are apps available to tell drivers how to avoid these bridges and stuff. But I think I just, I wanted to do a little bit more research into this because it does feel like it happens so, so, so much here and and recently. But that, I, I think like our, our, our uh, understanding of it on a larger scale is just a little bit skewed. We think it's worse for us than it is everywhere else. There are places where it's just as bad or really? or worse. Yeah. In London, Ontario, there is one bridge that gets hit five times a year on average. So like think every every two and a half months, this bridge, and it's the same bridge, right? It gets hit. But what they've done there, Simi, is they have installed a system before the bridge. Like, you know, when you go into an underground parking lot and they have uh, these right. these metal things hanging down. So if you hit it, you'll still it won't do as much damage because it's hanging. Right. It's not like a, a permanent structure, uh, but you'll hear it hit your car. Um, so they have in, they've installed systems like this at this bridge in London, Ontario. And it says it's dr- drastically reduced the number, the number of collisions. The truck drivers will hear it, you know, hit their truck and then they stop 
up and turn around. So now they only get about uh, you know maybe one a year instead of instead of five a year. There are places in the states where it happens all the time. There are places in the UK. In the UK, they've had like over eighteen hundred overpass strikes over a period of two years. Eighteen hundred, like that's that's a lot. So it doesn't just happen here, but uh, people are coming up with different sort of solutions and ways to sort of fix this and stuff. I mentioned that metal pole thing. One company is test out testing out like a laser system. So like if you if you're driving in some for some reason you cut this laser. Uh, lights will flash, like you're going to hit the oh, overpass. Okay, that's you know? good. So right. a warning like, system. Exactly. So you're saying we need to, rather than just wait for common sense to kick in, we need to help people along. Well, it's kind of like, as a parent of young children, I feel like it's part education and then also part you have to just sort of say, look, we... The damage that's being done by this is inconveniencing so many other people that we can't just let it keep happening. Like, it would be wonderful to, like, give tough love to these companies and these truck drivers until they figure it out. But the people who end up paying for that and all the other commuters who are delayed by this and, like, our tax dollars are being used to fix all – so – it, yes, we definitely still need to punish and figure that out and stop it from happening. An ounce of prevention for a pound of cure. Uh, but we, I think we also need to like get involved and just say, like, you guys can't figure this out on your own. We're going to figure it out. We're going to put these systems in place. I appreciate that you are giving this context so that we understand it's not just us. Because we do have a tendency to think, we, this is the only place where this happens. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, in the States, the standard for an overpass is 14.4 feet. Hearing Canada, it's 13.6 feet. Oh, okay, that's a big difference. Yes, and the standard for height for a semi-truck is around 13 feet. So like six inches variance here, almost closer to a foot variance in the States, and it still happens in the States. Wow, okay. So obviously we can raise the overpasses like in the future as we build them. Sure, yeah. But that's not going to help us with these ones that are already around. Like you mentioned this one in London, Ontario. I love this story. Yeah. It's called the Talbot Street Bridge. Correct, And yes. there's actually a local university student in London, Ontario who runs a social media account. Yeah, talking about how often it gets hit, right? Yeah, like, oh, I got hit again. He referred to it as the bridge is always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Give me more trucks. He, says it, he calls it a truck eating bridge. Yeah, and you would think that if you're a truck driver and this bridge is famous, you wouldn't go that way, but they still do. Okay, so what you're saying is that this happens, um, stupidity is everywhere. Absolutely, And that we're we're all kind of subject to doing this. So I understand that maybe we can maybe understand this is human nature. This isn't necessarily just a personal thing against our overpasses. Right, yeah. Like we're, it it does happen everywhere. So we, you know, it's okay. But that, I'm also not trying to make excuses for like, oh, it happens everywhere so we can just let it keep happening. You know, I think the number of people that were convenienced by it last night or inconvenienced by it, excuse me, last night, that that sucks. I would have hate to, hated to have been one of those people. We need to we need to work to stop it, but also like understand that it happens all over the place. Not I just here. really like that idea of the warning systems. Totally right, and like I but I that's guarantee a lot of money it's cheap. I bet it's cheaper than repairing all the overpasses. Probably, but then this is all these overpasses are everywhere. We don't have the thing where it's one overpass that gets right. hit all the time. It's like they're all over Metro Vancouver. But Scott, excellent points. Thank you Thank so you. much for that. If you want to weigh in, uh, let us know what you think. Like, do we need more warning systems then? Like, if these overpasses are going to keep getting hit, do we need to do more to prevent that from happening rather than just focusing on driver education? 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And boy, there's a lot for us to catch up on. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Okay, let's start with the these anti-Soji protests set for today, because it feels like all the political parties kind of have this on their mind right now. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a big story today. Rallies held by, there's I think there's two groups, Hands Off Our Kids and the One Million March for Children are scheduled around the country. There'll be dozens of locations in BC, including in front of the legislature, uh, opposing what they call the sexually explicit content and gender ideology that is indoctrinating kids um, into LGBTQ TS plus ideology in schools through the SOGI uh, module, the sexual orientation and gender identity programs module. Uh, So that is something that most political parties yesterday tried to get out in front of because the BC Teachers Federation had written a letter to the Greens, United and NDP saying, please denounce this thing before it happens. And the TF likes to play a little politics as well. But I think in this case, uh, it was uh, supposed to be an easy move by all three parties to denounce this. And the premier wrote back, uh, Premier David Eby said, we're seeing this concerning rise where trans people are being targeted. We can't stand idly by in the face of a bully. We have to denounce this. The Greens wrote back saying we stand with teachers and parents and students and supporting inclusive education. (laughs) BC United's education critic, Eleanor Sturko, writes back and says, hey, it's the Liberal government in 2016 that created the SOGI policy. We've changed our name, but that doesn't change our pride in that. And it looked pretty good until BC United leader Kevin Falcon opened his mouth uh, yesterday. Yeah, what happened? And answered a question about it. Yeah, well, he he was asked by Vancouver Sun reporter uh, Katie DeRosa about this. And she sort of even zeroed in a bit more on the issue of pronouns and some people objecting to the idea that uh, you know, a te- maybe teachers need to consult with parents before a student can decide whether to change their pronoun. Falcon, he decides to answer by saying that when it comes to parents feeling a need to protest, it tells you something. It tells you they feel excluded and ignored in what's going on in schools. And it's important we don't dismiss that protest outright. And we recognize there's legitimate concerns driving some of these concerns amongst parents. And that parents should have notice when sex education classes are planned and have the ability to withdraw their kids if they want, which, by the way, is what happens. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I thought, wait a minute, this is not what goes on. Yeah, yeah. And but uh, describing these protests as having legitimate concerns uh, is kind of in a way endorsing them. And so very quickly, the BC United Party starts scrambling and Kevin Falcon starts making calls and saying, listen, I didn't quite hear the question, but I answered it anyways. But, but I need also, to reaffirm. doesn't this go completely like against what his own MLA, Eleanor Sturko, was saying? Like her own party leader is the one who was questioning it. It does. Yes, it goes against her letter. And so he has to go out publicly and say, actually, I was wrong. Um, we do 100% support the existing SOGI policies and we wouldn't change them if we form government, which is... Uh, which has been the United position, but I think people who haven't listened to Falcon would scratch their heads and go, well, maybe he's not being honest about it. Uh, Maybe there's some ulterior motive here. I think that damage was done and it allowed the NDP who is just like, they have a whole wing of people waiting 
for anyone in BC United to say something about a social issue and then they jump out and call uh, the party intolerant and they point out all the weird history of MLAs who oppose uh, gay rights and trans rights and want to build giant monuments of Jesus's hands in the mountains above the Fraser Valley and stuff like that, like weird stuff. And so they're all over that. And in lost in the shuffle uh, are the BC conservatives who said nothing. And I understand they're putting a statement out this morning. They're not going to be in the march as a party, but they expect many of their members to be. And their statement is apparently going to talk about some of the shared values uh, that they might have with some of the things the protesters are saying. So it's the only party hmm. on the political spectrum willing to flirt with what typically, Simi, like in the United States, is a far-right uh, movement, the anti-Soji movement. Uh, and it's not really about Soji. It's kind of it's kind of a dog whistle for other things. And uh, the conservatives look like they want to kind of uh, tiptoe around that to see if they can pick up some support there. Hmm. Okay. So that they tend to think that what those might be their voters. I guess so. I mean, the conservatives continue to pride themselves on being the only party to take certain stances that they, they think, and maybe there is something to this, that if they're the only ones talking in a by-election about the issue of uh, trans people, uh, you know, trans women not being allowed to compete in sports with uh, other women, that they are somehow forging new political ground and somehow appealing to uh, uh, part of the electorate that wants an option. And the conservatives continue to say, we want to be an option for people who are upset about the way that society and the world is going. So it would make sense that they would try to, in their minds, um, be the only party to not denounce what's about to happen today on these anti-Soji protests. And that appears to be a version of uh, what they're, what they want to do. I think it's important also just to mention what Soji is, right? And yes. it's it's a learning module that if schools are allowed to use. It's not mandatory. It's a resource in the within the PE curriculum that talks like things about how your um, you know sexual identity might shape your personal identity, and can talk about the diverse types of families and the consequences of name calling and. Um, you know, it can and talk about prejudice and respectful language and, uh, you know, little things like teachers, instead of saying good morning, boys and girls say good morning, everyone. It is not pornographic. Um, it is not uh, about ramming an ideology down the throats of, of students. It's supposed to be about inclusive, making people feel welcome if they do um, you know, regardless of their sexual uh, or gender But it uh, seems identity. to have become this kind of flashpoint that for some reason, people who don't understand perhaps what it's fully all about, what they think it is, is mm-hmm. enough to get them all fired up. Sure. And it, because it's coming from the United States, where it's slightly different and has been whipped up into a sort of like, you know, example of the woke um, agenda right. being forced on people that... By the time it gets up here, for some people in today's march, it's not going to matter what Soji is. It's part of something else. And it's a, it's a dog whistle to intolerance for some people. And it doesn't matter if you explain yeah. to them what Soji is. They're, they're not going to listen to it. So, Exactly. Yeah. There's more to come on that whole protest, the anti-protest, all of that that's coming up today. But there's other stuff in politics for us to break down with Rob Shaw this morning. Now, Rob, you mentioned BC United leader Kevin Falcon having a bit of a rough day yesterday. Uh, and Because the, they tried to make a, a policy announcement too, didn't they? 
Yeah, it was supposed to be the BC United's wildfire plan, and it turned into this is the second policy plank that the BC United has tried to launch in the last uh, week that has just been overshadowed by leader Kevin Falcon kind of duffing uh, the thing into the ground, but like a golfer who shanks their shot and the ball flies off and hits somebody in the head and the crowd on the side and the That's whole thing. That's very visual. That's really visual. Very, and yes, the guy's yeah. got a hat and the hat flies off and then he falls over. Anyways, <laughs> it's, it's a visual thing. I get it. Yeah. So, but, Political scientists will tell you all about it. But the uh, the point being that, like, there was a plan there. No one really covered it. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning because it is, it is amazing in politics, I find. We talked about the wildfires, you know, all summer. It was a, it's a huge thing. And now that they have died down, this is the problem. People don't talk about it anymore. We don't do any of the preparation work or any of the discussion work or any of the public debate until next year. They roar up and then people go, why didn't we plan for this? So... There was a BC United plan. If they form government, they want a bigger uh, full-time BC wildfire fighting service with an expanded provincial aircraft fleet and better technology. They want to tackle that issue of locals who have skill sets who could be used and trained and given equipment and ready to go to help prevent fires in their community and respond and save their homes. Think of the North uh, Swap Lake folks who got into a big clash with the wildfire service this summer called thieves and mischief makers. The NDP is still sort of trying to dig out of that one. Uh, a, a better plan to boost financial support for people who evacuate in 72 hours. There were lengthy delays. The premier mentioned people sleeping in their cars, waiting to get help at centers. He's got a task force trying to figure that out. And then more aggressive uh, forest policies like uh, fire smart funding to clear fuels before they threaten a community, which Forest Minister Bruce Ralston is blamed on municipalities for not doing. So I think the plan not it was incredibly detailed, but it hit the areas that stung the NDP government and the wildfire service this summer and and provides a slightly different option for voters if they were unhappy uh, in different parts of the province, generally in the interior north that are already voting BC United anyways, but um, is a, is a slightly different version of what the, the NDP is doing. And the NDP, to be honest, is, is trying to change theirs uh, to, to address some of these issues too. So what is the rationale behind what we see BC United doing right now, which is this is another big policy announcement that they made. Like, we're a year away from an election. Why do this now? Well, I think that Kevin Falcon feels like he wants to give voters a chance to learn what BC United is because that no one knows what the brand is. And as they learn what the brand is, it's more than just a soccer ball logo. Uh, it is more than just a weird new name. It's got a bunch of policies underneath it. So between now and the next election, if you somehow encounter BC United or wonder what it is, there'll be at least a few planks of a platform that might be able to hook you in depending on your if you're interested in crime or addictions or wildfires or whatever. Uh, the the risk of that is that you play into your opponent's hands. The NDP have often criticized BC United for just complaining and not offering solutions. But if you offer solutions, then the government just steals them and then your solutions become meaningless. So there is a bit of a balancing act it, it has to find there. But its intention, Falcon's intention, is instead of waiting till halfway through an election campaign to release a 100-page you know, right. platform, he's going to do it ahead of time and try to hook people in. Uh, and hope that the NDP are too stubborn to change. And that is a, we'll, we'll see how well it works. It's not what most 
um, parties do, but uh, it's an interesting approach by the leader. Well, I guess it has to go off well, though, right? Like, as you point out, yesterday was another one. And there's some interesting stuff in that wildfire plan, but once again, got sidetracked. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for the opposition to get publicity, right? So they need these plans to land and launch in in the way that they hope. Otherwise, that you know, who's going to cover their wildfire plan tomorrow? Like, there's other things going on. There's so much news. So they are a bit missed opportunities, but they're the best that an opposition party can do sometimes, which is hard to get uh, to get, uh, you know, news attention. And I think that it gives at least their MLA something to talk about when they're trying to drum up support. And it gives uh, the potential candidates that they want to recruit something to aspire to. You're not just joining a new title that means nothing. You're joining uh, a party that has some positions already. And so I think that helps them with recruitment. They got to be out there trying to find more Eleanor Sturkos, more really good uh, politicians to join BC United, modern folks who are intelligent and um, smart and well-spoken and seem like good people too. And uh, they need to have a few stakes in the ground for folks to want to join if they know what the party stands for. So there's that too. I think it makes sense. Um, the NDP are going to make life difficult for them and the leader is not doing himself any favors, but, uh, the, the strategy is, is an interesting one. It certainly is. All right, Rob, thank you. Okay. Take care. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after you can unwind using their free high speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about comedy, shall we? Uh, Except what we're talking about isn't very funny, unfortunately. With the news this past week about comedian Russell Brand and the allegations against him, a lot of the attention has been on people, in particular women, who tried to speak out in years past and were ignored. There are far, far too many examples that were right in front of all of us of women, you know, raising their hands and saying, hey, there are serious concerns about this person. Time after time, they were ignored. And that's not the first time we've heard this, is it? Female comedians will tell you the industry can be toxic. It is dominated by men and speaking out just isn't very funny. You know what I mean? Like everything is just supposed to be funny. Or maybe people are told who try to raise a concern, well, oh, you just don't get the joke. Sound familiar? How does any of this change? Dr. Ellie Thompson is a senior lecturer at the Birmingham School of Media and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Hi, Simi. Hi. This this sounds a bit like Groundhog Day, isn't it, with this story? Because how often has this happened before? You've heard about this. Yeah, many, many times. I think, you know, I've been studying comedy in the United Kingdom for the last 10 years and a lot of the kind of 
focus of the brand story um, has really kind of triggered memories of things that have come up through that research. You've been studying this for 10 years. So what have you seen in that time? Yeah, so I've been uh, based in the Women in Comedy Festival in Manchester as their researcher in residence. Uh, but I've also been studying the the comedy circuit more broadly. And I've been looking specifically at the boundaries that women um, and non-binary comics have when trying to enter into the industry, which has historically been and continues to be male-dominated. And I've kind of been exploring those barriers. and, And part of what has come up as part of that research is just the sheer level of misogyny that women encounter on a really regular basis, especially in the live circuit. And why is it, Dr. Thompson, that you think they're not listened to? Like in this case of of Russell Brand and the allegations against him, there are so many examples on camera, on television, everywhere of people saying, you know, here's what I think, and people didn't listen. Why is that? Yeah, well, I I think it's it's very difficult, as you kind of kind of highlighted in your introduction, uh, that women working in the comedy industry, especially people working as comedians, labour under the kind of cloud of stereotypes about women not being able to be funny or, or not take a joke. And obviously, if we, on top of that, the way that that stereotype has been leveraged against kind of feminist or um, kind of gender equality positions, um, you know, that's probably why when people do uh, speak out, they're jeopardizing their professional kind of identity, because not only are they risking their career and not being booked again as a comic or, or being labeled as uh, causing trouble, they're also potentially going to put themselves in a situation where they look like they don't have the humorous c- credentials to do their job properly in a way that, you know, myself as an academic, you know, if I call behavior out, I don't have to worry about see- being seen as humorless. That's not part of my professional identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that added layer of complexity working in the comedy industry that makes it difficult. And I think also just the, the, the environment itself, um, is very good at masking or providing a space where boundaries are constantly being pushed, both on stage and off. And as a result, when behavior does cross the line, it can be very difficult to see (laughs) because it's obscured by lots of other behavior, which is also quite challenging. Right. Like you don't know what is the joke. Maybe this person was joking. Maybe they didn't actually behave like this. Maybe it was all part of the routine, right? Yeah, but also it's like the kind of behaviours that get normalised. I mean, in the Channel 4 Dispatches documentary, accusations were made around from from Brand's former colleagues explaining that he often took meetings either naked or in his underwear. You know, in any other profession, that would would immediately have been a red flag. (laughs) That would have been unacceptable. But in comedy, that was chalked up to, you know, that's just Russell being Russell. And, you know, that's that's his, you know, comic persona. So that's what I mean when I say it's the specific working conditions that maybe foster this, an environment that makes these kind of boundary crossings or, um, you know, assaults and sexual misconduct possible. Has nothing changed, Dr. Thompson? I mean, when you think about the last five or six years with all the different things that have come up, the Me Too, Louis C.K., all of that, so has nothing changed? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that some things have changed. Um, the, the conversation and the actions are not happening quickly enough. But one thing I would really like to highlight is that the work being done to make this change has inevitably fallen on women and minority groups. So in the UK, the work being done to address sexual misconduct in the comedy circuit is being done by women comics and minority groups. You know, so the burden of undoing 
the unfair system <laughs> has fallen to those who are disenfranchised by it. So that's quite depressing, but also, you know, it, it does provide glimmers of hope in the sense that change is coming, but it is very much being led by people who have been disenfranchised by that, that system. Mm. And there's not enough being done by people in positions of power, um, which predominantly in the UK system are, are male, um, you know, t- to make those changes. What was different this time that made this blow up the way that it did? I think probably the celebrity status that, that Brand has. I mean, obviously, there is that factor where there was, there was name recognition of that comic on a much wider scale than there would be with somebody perhaps only working in the live circuit. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that are particularly shocking about the allegations is the number of people who not only knew about it, but potentially enabled situations to continue. You know, there was, again, discussion in the documentary around accommodations for including brand in programming by removing or, or suggesting the removal of women crew members because they didn't want to put those women crew members in a vulnerable situation rather than just not employing the, the problematic right. male comic. So, you know, again, the burden of, of changing that situation or making it a safe space was on at the expense of the careers of those 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 women, really. So you talked about why, you know, with comedy, oh, there's just somebody being funny or quirky. Is it because they think, oh, that's just his creativity? Like, are we blaming or, or allowing too much to be blamed on, oh, that's just the way their creativity? Well, yes, to some extent, but also just the, the informality of the sector. You, you were talking, especially in live comedy, about a huge number of freelance, precarious people who need to build relationships with each other in order to be booked again, in order to progress their careers. And because historically that has been, you know, people in positions of power have been men, you know, promoters, bookers have been men, and the comics have also been men, that has created a very masculinized informal space where banter is very much the the kind of default setting so it's not only um kind of it, it's that it's that environment that informality and the precarity that also creates that that particular context in that, that's difficult for people to navigate right well this has been fascinating thank you so much for your time on that today you're welcome thanks very much this is mornings with simi I don't know what happened when that song started playing. Everybody everybody got really worked up and excited, including our contributor, Scott Schatz. So you go a little old school and everybody gets all excited. Just doing jazz hands over here. Jazz you know, hands. feels good. Jazz hands up in the air. <laughs> all right. We're talking about the internet and this this is so tough for so many parents about developing rules around this. Yeah. And to me, your kids are older than mine. So uh, you, you probably have it established, but my daughter, my older daughter is seven and she is all about the phones. Uh, the kids in her grade and grade two. Lo- Wait a minute, seven? Yes. She doesn't, Seven. I want to be clear, does not have a phone, but like when they're making a craft, it's like, hey, you can make something out of this cardboard box. They make phones and pretend that they're doing cell phone things. And she's already talking about what app she's going to get when she gets a phone. And I'm like, it's a long time away until you get a phone. Like we're not talking, these apps probably won't even exist by the time you get there a phone. There will be much better apps by yeah, the time that comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like I have this paranoia and my friends, my peer group, we all do about how we're going to manage this because we see it coming. 
thing, you know? And it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm, my kids aren't getting a phone. Or, you know, I know somebody who, like their daughter is 10 and she has a phone and it's like they, they go through it every night and check everything that she's seen. And it's like, what is health? Like, what's the best way to do this? So I spoke with a woman named Devorah Heitner. She's like an author, speaker. She's done TED Talks. She got a PhD. She is like an expert in this stuff. She has a great new book. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. And she has spoken a lot about this. So I just started, I basically asked her, my first question was, are we overreacting at all to this, to this type of stuff? I think some caution is warranted. The internet is definitely not designed with kids in mind. The reading level is like, you know, grade eight and the content, some of it isn't even great for adults. So certainly I think it's, it's, it's not unwarranted to be concerned. That said, there's lots we can do to influence and help our kids get comfortable with and to use the internet safely. And there really is no sort of unplugged life. Like even if you're going to go, live, you know, live on a farm, you're probably going to have a website for your farm. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned that point because I've I interviewed a guest a couple of weeks ago who spent a year offline, like without any internet access at all, like not even through like third parties or anything or friends or anything like that. And one of the points that he came away from it with is just that how necessary the internet is for, you know, just everyday life, like paying taxes and like booking a taxi and just all of these sort of random things. So I like that point that the idea of not keeping our kids off of this is kind of, you know, that's not, that's not realistic, but just teaching them, um, proper usage. Now, do you, do you have like a line in your mind? Like, Oh, at this age, it's okay to start exposing them. Maybe a measured amount. Do you have any insight on that? Well, once kids can read, which is, you know, between like five and seven for most kids, then they may be able to do search. That doesn't necessarily mean, again, that the content there is designed for them or that we should be like just handing them our phone. I think at those ages, it's ideal if they're using computers and and iPads and other tablets to go with more of a walled garden approach. Like maybe they shouldn't be playing on a public server, interacting with others who aren't in the room. Ideally, you know, they're watching shows, but maybe they're watching on a service like the Disney Channel or Netflix versus, you know, YouTube, which is basically the Wild West. Like you can see anything there. Because once you're on the net, you want to be with them in those first experiences, just like the first, you know, 26,000 times your kid is driving a car, you'd want to be with them. You're not just going to hand them the keys. So, you know, if they're going to go on YouTube and they're, say, 8, 9, 10, that's a good time to be with them. Talk about what to do if they run into something that's scary, not for kids. And it is important to talk with kids about some of the kinds of content they might see that might be upsetting. And that's a different conversation with an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old. Like the conversation about things like pornography is different with, you know, a, a kid who might really stumble on it in elementary school versus a kid who in a sense might be looking for information about things like sex and sexuality when they're older. But it's important to talk with kids about, hey, you might find this, this is misleading, this could be scary with little kids and with older kids to say, hey, this is, you know, this is out there, but this isn't how I want you to learn about this stuff. You know, here's a good book, right? Make sure they have an alternative. We don't want kids going there for their basic education. I think it's really important to, to not kind of put your head in the sand, though, and think, oh, my kid would never look for anything like that or find anything like that. Oh, that's, yeah. I that's mean, not how the internet works. Maybe answer this. This is kind of like the big thing. It's like, how do we find the balance here between th- this is this is here, it's not going away, we're trying to teach our kids 
um, responsible usage, like older kids who are questioning things like uh, sexuality and development and stuff. Uh, I've also talked to people who feel that like, um, in certain cases, the internet can be a, a resource for, you know, kids who are LGBTQ finding other people like them in a, in a situation where they otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Kids can build like affinity and community. And right. I think, I think it's great, like for kids who are LGBTQ plus or neurodivergent or, you know, are a member of another community that experiences oppression and they want to join a community online. What I hope, though, is that all kids also find an in-person community. We don't want that to be their only community, ideally. And also we have to recognize that even within the positives of an affinity community, and I really believe in that, there are some risks as well that can be a really positive space, but it's definitely a kind of a a space where kids should have some mentorship and support and they should know what are the red flags. Like what are some situations where I could be in a chat with someone and I don't want to be in that chat anymore. What is the best way for parents to keep their kids safe on the internet? Being the person they can talk to openly is huge because if we threaten our kids or say, I'm going to take away your phone. If you go to a site, you shouldn't, or, you know, add an app that we haven't talked about. Um, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have rules, by the way, and enforce them and have consequences. But I think if we say, like, I'll take your phone forever if you stay up late one night texting, like if we, you know, are kind of extreme in our consequences, then they may not come to us if something happens that's scary, like someone having a nude picture of them that they want to share around school or, you know, some other thing. What we want is even if, say, your kid has shared an image, even if you're not thrilled they made that choice, you will stick up for them. You'll be on their side. You'll help them deal with the sort of legal, you know, or whatever ramifications, because you want them to be safe, you'll support them. So our kids need to know that even if they've broken a rule, gotten on an app, we didn't want them to get on whatever made a decision that we don't think was wise, we're still there for them. And we need to be really clear, hey, this is a powerful responsibility to be in a digital community with all these other people. I need you to do these things to stay safe. And I need you to let me know, like if you see something that group text, you need to bring that to me. That's Devorah Heitner. She's the author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Scott, that was really good advice. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. No word from the Ministry of Transportation this morning about yet another truck hitting yet another overpass. I mean, how many times have we heard this? Honestly, when that last one happened a few months ago on Highway 99, causing so much chaos, I thought for sure that would be the last one, right? Because everyone was so upset. I thought, oh boy, truckers are going to pay attention. The trucking industry is really going to pay attention to this and they're going to crack down and make sure this doesn't happen again. And then last night in North Vancouver, that was not the case because it did happen again. Now, the good news for commuters is that this morning that overpass reopened, everything is clear, but what is it going to take so that we don't hear about these stories anymore? And how many have we had anyway? According to the opposition's critic for transportation, Trevor Halford, uh, they said since July the 19th, Uh, that there have been so many. And in fact, since 2021, there have been 21 overpass strikes, about 10 this year too. That's a lot. So Trevor Halford joins us now, MLA for BC United and the Shadow Minister of Transportation Infrastructure and ICBC. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Simi. Appreciate it. That's a lot. Are you surprised to hear about another one too? Uh, I, I am surprised and I'm frustrated just like uh, commuters are. And I, you know, I, growing up, I, you know, grew up in the lower mainland. I never, ever remember this ever happening. And now it seems to be happening on such a frequent level. So I I think that, uh, you know, it's not only 
concern for safety, uh, but also, you know, when you look at, um, you know, the frustration uh, that this is going to cause uh, commuters, I'm glad to hear that it, it's reopening uh, this morning, but, and also the impact that this has caused to taxpayers um, is, is absolutely enormous. So something's got to happen, and I am absolutely shocked that it hasn't happened already. Okay, when you say something, like what though? How do we prevent this from happening? Well, I think a couple things. There, there's got to be some accountability. And you talked, and I, I, you know, I'm seeing different figures fly around in terms of how many times this has happened. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it's happened seven times this year. I've heard it's happened 10. I think we can all agree that it's happened way too many times this year, and it's happened way too many times over the past couple of years. Um, so there's been ample opportunity when we've seen this happen again it's not just a one-off we're talking uh you know uh, you know at least probably around 10 times this year so at what point does the minister actually say i'm going to stop talking about this and i'm actually going to do something i you know in july um he talked about bringing in heavy fines uh increased education he said enough is enough and you know they're going to step up and they're going to hold uh the drivers the companies accountable and it's it's September now. Um, do you think I it's time to you. do that then? Do you think it's time to bring that in and make these people accountable? Well, I think it was time a while ago. Um, and I can tell you this is that, you know, every, uh, you know, the Ministry of Transportation, the minister, everybody is in Vancouver right now for UBCM. Um, everybody's meeting. Um, so there's no, there's no shortage on people that are available to either comment or make a decision. I, I don't think that this is uh, something that, um, you know, it, the public is going to be up in arms about when it comes to keeping people accountable um, for the safety of our uh, safety of our roads. Okay, so what do we do then? Is it, is it a matter of more legislation? Is it a matter of hitting the next time this happens, hitting that driver and that company with a fine so big that every other company is going to think twice? Like, what is it? Well, I think that's part of it is listen when you look at like look at the overpass that's been struck on highway 99 that's still uh you know there's still alternating traffic and um the work that's going to go into that and to get the engineers out there and to to get it upgraded and everything like that, you're you're talking um a large a large amount of money and in terms of i i don't know what fine was levied at that that driver or that company but i can guarantee it was fairly low um, so, you know, when we're talking about this, I think we absolutely have to hold people accountable. And that's when people will start to wake up and realize um, <clears throat> that when they're driving these trucks and like 99.9% of the drivers out there, uh, I think are responsible. I, I absolutely believe that. But what we're seeing right now is that there are some that aren't and they are causing havoc on our roads. And we've, but this is not new. This is something that we've seen, uh, you know, frequently over the last couple of years, and um, we've had opportunity to step up and change it, and the minister has, has completely failed us on that. Do we need more technological intervention here as well? Like, do we need to start measuring loads randomly on the road? Do we need more load checks again? I think we need more common sense. Like, it, I, I don't know, and I will check to see if this is happening in other jurisdictions. I, I don't imagine it's happening at this frequency. So I don't know what's going on here, but I can tell you that, um, you know, I think companies will step up and be a little bit more diligent if they know that these fines are going to result in, um, you know, it could, it could end some companies, right? So, you know, when you talk about hitting an overpass, you're causing millions of dollars of damage 
and you're also pack, impacting thousands of people in terms of their uh, their community, their commute time, and their quality of life. So again, you know, the one thing I'm, I'm most frustrated about is for the minister to come on the media like he did in July and talk tough and then not back it up and then have another incident months later, um, I think is uh, an absolute disservice to the people that are using the roads in British Columbia. And what would you say as well to the trucking companies here? Well, I, I could say um, I think the majority of the trucking companies are doing a great job and they're getting our goods and services where they need to go. There is a small percentage, uh, very small, that I I think are, you know, absolutely, um, you know, not putting themselves in the right position in terms of being aware of where they are and what they've got on the back. And um, that's very alarming because, you know, people can end up being being killed in these. And I'm I'm so grateful that we haven't seen that yet. So you're saying the time is now to crack down. I think the time was months ago. I, I think the time was over a year ago. Like this is this is not something that's just happened the last couple of months. This is something that's happened over the last couple of years. And um, I I don't understand why, uh, you know, at this time in September, we're still talking about this. We should absolutely have fines, education in place that make sure that people know that when this happens, there are severe consequences. The minister seems to agree with that. The problem is he doesn't find this as a priority to actually go out and do the work. Well, we'll have to find out what they say about it. Uh, we haven't heard from them yet. Now, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Trevor Halford, MLA for BC United and Shadow Minister for Transportation. And the Ministry of Transportation has not yet said anything about this latest dump truck hitting an overpass, or a truck, I should say, hitting an overpass, had a load on the back of it. So not necessarily a dump truck, but a hidden overpass in North Vancouver was closed hours, hours, hours overnight, right up until this morning at about four o'clock this morning when they reopened it, thank goodness, in time for the morning commute. And thank goodness there wasn't more damage done to that overpass. Uh, But every time this happens, it causes such chaos. And we ask the question, why does it keep happening. How can people not check their load? How are we not coming down hard on somebody who who causes that kind of damage to public infrastructure all because they didn't do a measurement and make sure that they could fit on all the overpasses that they have to go under, right? There's no excuse anymore when you consider how much this has been in the news. What do you think should happen here? Is it going to take a really tough fine, like a really huge fine on the trucker and the trucking company so that they pay attention and make sure they check these things? Like, what is it going to take? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been in the news, but I'm sure some of you are wondering what this One Million March for Children is actually all about. What these protesters are are doing is they say they're coming out against sexual orientation and gender identity policies in schools. Now, these rallies are, are led by a couple of different groups, one of them called Hands Off Our Kids. They say that talking about all this in school is indoctrination. And it's why the BC Teachers Federation has been calling for public and political support for resources in schools, saying these rallies are actually promoting homophobia and transphobia by pretending it's all about parental consent. I want to talk more about that this morning. Fareed Khan is with us, the founder of Canadians United Against Hate and joins us now. Fareed, thanks for being here. Good morning and thank you for having me. So we're seeing this right across the country. This must be, it, it just feels so troubling that this is going on. It's, uh, it's deeply, deeply troubling because while this, these protests are happening under the guise of a march for children, 
what it is in fact is uh, anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ2 hate. It's an orchestrated campaign of intimidation, um, hate and xenophobia targeting uh, those who are LGBTQ2, but trans uh, individuals in particular and especially trans students. The reality is we've had um, uh, you know the, the, the LGBTQ2 community has been become part of the mainstream over the last 25, 30 years, unlike the way it was when they had to you know, basically be closeted and not be able to be who they are. And what these protests are doing and what the people behind these protests are doing is trying to erase them from sight and mind. Uh, and they're, unfortunately, they have some conservative politicians who are supporting them. Are you surprised, though, at seeing this, these rallies happen like right across the country? No, I, actually, I'm not. I mean, obviously, they are well orchestrated and well planned. I heard, first heard about uh, the fact that this was going to happen back in the middle of summer, and I was wondering whether there was going to be any community responses. And uh, sure enough, communities, um, uh, community organizations across the country, not just uh, LGBTQ2 advocates, but also um, uh, human rights organizations, anti-hate organizations, anti-hate groups, have stepped up to hold counter-protests in every province across the country, up to four dozen or more um, counter-protests across the country in every province, including in the Yukon. And um, I think this shows that uh, there are Canadians out there who are willing to step up, not only oppose and not only oppose the hate that is uh, the basis for these protests, but also to say that we stand with the LGBTQ2 community, and we support those who are transgender. And do you think, do people understand that, though? Do people understand, like, they're framing this as, oh, parental consent and, and parents' rights, but there's so much more going on here. There is, and yeah, and, and they frame it that way because <clears throat> it allows them to basically push the, the hate and xenophobia aspect of their protests behind them. Um, what they're doing is they're trying to attempt uh, they're attempting to violate the fundamental human rights and charter rights of a certain minority community which historically has been marginalized and has been persecuted and um unfortunately politicians are supporting them and um i would say to those politicians who say they're allies and who say they support the LGBTQ2 community to, to come out and do more than j- just um, say they support the community with words and do it through actions. We've been calling consistently for the last several years for a nationally led um, anti-hate, aggressive anti-hate campaign um, led by the federal government and coordinated with those provinces that are willing to work with the federal government uh, as well as with municipalities because this is the latest wave of hate hitting our shores. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously originating in the U.S. because you have a number of U.S. states which have their so-called don't-say-gay bills, which are also marginalizing um, this community. And they have connections in Canada, and that's what these people are following in Canada. Um, They're using that model to try and marginalize um, this community. What do you think a national campaign would do? I think, well, first of all, there needs to be a, a huge part of it needs to be a public education campaign. There needs to be um, resources provided, uh, not just to community groups, but also to um, school uh, boards uh, that, so that there can be education around not only the presence of minority 
communities in Canada, but also how they have contributed and how they are no different than anybody else. Unfortunately, the people pushing this are a very small but very vocal minority who have money behind them, and this includes white supremacists, it includes um, people who were involved in the convoy protest movement, uh, as well as extremely conservative uh, members of religious communities. And they've come together, and uh, I'm sorry, but it's a, you know, it's a poisonous mix. And what I fear is that all this uh, dehumanization and demonization of the LGBTQ2 community um, is going to lead to something tragic, um, similar to what happened with Muslims leading up to the murder of uh, the Muslims in the Quebec City Mosque and on two subsequent occasions after that. I, I f- really dread that, that happening um, if action, strong action and aggressive action isn't taken against what is essentially a campaign of hate. What do you want people to know? Like when they're going to see this in the news today and read about it or see a headline about it, what do you want people to keep in mind? I think they have to understand what human rights are. Human rights are fundamental. They are guaranteed under the Charter of Rights, and under that charter, we are all equal. No one group's or person's human rights supersedes others. And this is what these people are trying to do. They're trying to say our rights supersede those of this particular community, and uh, they put it under the guise of parental rights. But no, parental rights do not supersede children's fundamental human rights. And um, I'm glad to see that there are some school boards, and including the uh, Human Rights Commissioner in B.C., who has come out to say that uh, these are campaigns of hate and they need more resources. And I'm hoping that we will see very strong statements made today by not just... Uh, various community leaders, but also by politicians to say that this is unacceptable and this is not um, going to be allowed to continue in Canada. Fareed, thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you for having me again. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are those markets doing? Well, markets are in the green this morning after kind of a red start to the week. And there was some stronger economic data. And also there's a lot of anticipation uh, regarding the Fed meeting that's going to be, uh, well, their interest rate decision is going to be announced at 11 a.m. today. Uh, and of course, and they're going to have their their talk at 1130. And it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. I mean, the markets are really pricing in a 99% chance that the Fed's going to hold interest rates steady at 5.5%. Um, you know, I mean, the, the kind of the question is, is, um, you know, are they going to increase one more time, uh, possibly in their November meeting, or, or are they done? And, you know, that's going to kind of be where, where markets go, in, in my opinion. You know, I mean, markets have been very focused on what the Fed is doing, uh, interest rates and inflation, and, uh, and that's what we're looking at. And then you saw, of course, in Canada, inflation came in higher than expected, uh, you know, which I'm sure you guys commented on mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, inflation edged up uh, to 4% for the month of August from 3.3% in the previous month. And a lot of that, though, has to do with gas prices, right? Sammy, I'm sure that you're seeing it at, uh, at the gas stations when you're filling up your car, unless you have a Tesla, of course. Um, you know, that uh, gas prices have a, a significant um, effect on inflation. 
And, you know, that's why we've seen inflation really come down from the peak, too, is because gas prices came way down for for a certain amount of time. Uh, And then, of course, in the last couple of months, we've seen it rise again. And so some some believe the Bank of Canada is going to look past us and also pause on rates. Um, It might be too early to, to tell. When we look at core inflation in Canada, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, ticked up only 0.1%, like to 3.3 from 3.2% a month earlier. Um, And then there's, of course, food inflation. And you see that um, Canadian politicians are now putting pressure onto Canadian grocery retailers to really stabilize prices. And and, uh, hopefully this happens. And, you know, because uh, I think that's one issue that we're seeing is that food prices are just being or or staying stubbornly high. And I I think that's one place that's really affecting all Canadians. And where gas prices, you know, central banks don't have as much control over that, uh, where food prices, um, you know, and they have called for a meeting with Loblaws, Metro, Empire, Walmart, and Costco uh, to really get a handle on why food prices are remaining as high as they have and uh, they're supposed to uh, come together before Thanksgiving to figure that out. And so we'll, we'll see if that happens. Yeah. Do you think that even that pressure, just like talking about it as well, will make make a difference? Because I think Canadians are, are very frustrated with what they see happening at the grocery store. Yeah, I, I do think we'll have an impact, um, you know, and we we own some of the grocers and the portfolios and, you know, the conversation that we're having, you know, along with uh, there's been some labor strikes as well. And now with the idea that food prices could come down, uh, that could be possibly negative for uh, some of these grocers in terms of their stock prices. But, you know, as a Canadian, I mean, we need food prices to, um, to come down, right? Uh, it affects every family and, you know, whether they're being held artificially Officially high is, is still to be seen or whether that would ever, you know, uh, be announced. I don't know. But I think there needs to be work to come together to reduce food prices overall uh, so that Canadians can afford their grocery bills. Okay, so we'll talk uh, more about that. Of course, as you said, lots of decisions that are coming uh, today. Normally, the U.S. Fed, like they they've kind of followed in the footsteps or done what we see happening in Canada, haven't they? Um, no, not, like, not the, always. When it comes I'm- to interest rates. Um, in terms of the Fed, no, they wouldn't look as much to Canada. Canada may look more towards the, the U.S. Um, but in terms of uh, earlier this year, I mean, you saw Canada pause on interest rates and possibly, you know, what we learned maybe a little too early um, and the U.S. kept going. So, you know, I think that central banks do look around the world at what other central banks are doing um, in other countries. But um, but I think they have to look at their own data. And there's been a lot of still strong economic data of the state's but remember how far and how fast they've raised rates, um, you know, historically is is unusual. And it takes some time for all these interest rate increases to really, uh, you know, infiltrate the economy. And so our belief is that they're going to pause. Um, you know, I think they're still going to pause in November. And I think we're very close to uh, that being it. And, um, you know, what's going to be important is how long all these central banks keep rates high. Um, we've heard some discussion of, you know, holding rates higher for longer. But then there's also that flip side discussion about reducing rates possibly by mid next year. And I know that a lot of Canadians would would welcome, um, you know, a reduction in interest rates at some point in the next six to 12 months, because a lot of people have to renew their mortgages. Uh, People are getting frustrated with their lines of credit. We're going to talk about um, having a financial advisor, which many people do. But how do you know when you have like a good financial advisor when you might not have a good financial advisor? 
Yeah, you know, I think having um, a financial advisor that's, you know, subpar is, is you know, important to notice. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great financial advisors out there, uh, advisors that are providing all the services people need. But I think there's some kind of warning signs that investors should be looking at. And, uh, you know, I mean, we see a lot of people's, you know, statements come across our desk. People call from the radio. Uh, we're talking to people about their experience. And so, you know, I have a lot to comment on in, in this space for sure. Um, you know, I think one is a lack of transparency. A lot of um, investors don't know what they're paying, don't know what the strategy is. It's never been explained to them in a easy-to-understand way. Um, you know, and, and what you want to make sure is that uh, it's it's clear before you even sign on with a financial advisor. You should know the fees that you're paying that you see and the fees that are possibly are embedded in funds and so on. I think that's a, that's a big one. And lack of communication to me is, is another huge one. A lot of people don't even leave their financial advisor because of performance, but because of lack of communication or, or understanding of the person or, um, you know, that relationship just isn't a good fit anymore is what we've seen, you know, when people are coming over to us. And, you know, that lack of communication could be, you know, no annual reviews or, um, you know, no no communication from the office in, in general about markets, you know. I mean, you know, for us, I mean, we've got a big team that's able to communicate with, with clients and also, you know, we send a weekly market come or we're doing the radio. There's lots of ways people can find out, you know, what our thoughts and feelings are about markets or even conference calls when markets are, are coming down. And so you want to make sure you're having that communication. And, and also there's advisors out there that maybe only provide kind of one solution to clients. And this is what we've seen recently, actually, with a, with a new client is that they have most of their portfolio only in one fund. And that fund was across every single portfolio. <clears throat> That's not really providing diversification. Again, I've talked about over-diversification where people have too many funds or portfolios. But in the case where you only have got one, um, you know, and, and one one uh, portfolio throughout all the, all the accounts that you have, or you and your spouse, to me, that's just not diversified. And then the lack of activity we saw as well, right? You kind of set it and forget it. Here's one fun, see you later. You know, what are you really paying for, you know, in, in that uh, regard? And so, and then missing services, right? People need financial and estate planning. I can't tell you <clears throat> how often these topics come up, more than the stock market, more than the portfolio. You know, people want to know, can they, you know, give money to their children? How do I pass on money uh, to my children and grandchildren with less tax? You know, these are questions that people have. And so this is, you know, if you're not receiving a lot of these kind of services, you should be asking your financial advisor whether they provide them or the firm does. Um, and if that's what you need and, you, you know, you're not getting it, then maybe you should be looking around. Okay, we need to ask ourselves, like, what kind of advisor am I looking for? What kind of a relationship do I want? Exactly. I mean, there's financial advisors out there and there's portfolio managers that makes a big difference. Advisors are where, you know, they're uh, you're calling you to buy and sell on every transaction. That A lot of people, especially in retirement, maybe don't want that because they want to enjoy retirement and don't want to think about every transaction. Um, portfolio managers are able to trade for you on a daily basis and, you know, act in a discretionary manner for you and make those decisions. And those traits that you're really looking for in an advisor, in my opinion, are, you know, someone you can trust. Uh, transparent about fees, proactive about advice, responsiveness, they're getting back to you, uh, and an emphasis on, on people, not products. So they should be learning about you, your goals, your concerns. Understanding your family dynamic is a really big one as well, that we take a lot of time um, on our team to really learn about the people we're dealing with. As I said, you can't manage someone's money if you don't know who they are. 
All right, well, Lori, thank you so much for that advice this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski. Lori is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. And you can contact her team directly, actually. It's 604-695-LORI, or you can check out their website at pinkowski.ca.